Susie finds the Old Testament pretty hard going. It's the start of April. Uh, Once again, this year, she set a goal of reading through the whole Bible. Uh, It's a great goal, but as many have found before her, it all fell apart in February. Uh, Things were getting wobbly, actually, towards the end of January, but she persevered through all that stuff about curtains and altars at the end of Exodus. But when she hit Leviticus, the wheels fell off. And she feels there's no getting back. But she's not surprised. I mean, as a Christian, she knows somehow all the Bible is God's word. But the Old Testament, really? I mean, it's called old. Doesn't that mean it's outdated or irrelevant? Many Christians have a strained relationship with the first 39 books of the Bible. Maybe we're okay with the Psalms and the practical advice in Proverbs is gold. You might know some of the key predictions about Jesus in Isaiah, but other than that, you might have to admit we're not so keen. Today, as we go to the start of the Jesus movement, we're going to see believers were accused of rejecting the Old Testament, of being against the God Israel had known and worshipped for thousands of years. It's a charge that could possibly hold water today, but shouldn't. As we're going to see, knowing Jesus is what the Old Testament is all about. Last week, at the start of chapter 6, we met a bloke named Stephen. Uh, Stephen was one of the seven culturally Greek believers, uh, one of the seven who uh, were chosen to help the apostles' ministry. They were chosen for the ministry of ensuring widows were fed, and not just any widows, but widows from a minority cultural group, culturally Greek widows. Stephen and his six mates were chosen, not because they were good at holding lots of plates or because they were good at logistics, and they were chosen because they were full of wisdom and the spirit. So Stephen was chosen for this ministry of care and provision. But the next thing we hear is he's out there speaking about Jesus and God is working miracles through him. So please open your Bible, have a look at verse 8, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. The synagogue of the freedmen seems to be a culturally Greek, a Hellenistic Jewish community in Jerusalem. The antagonism towards believers is spreading. So far, it had only been from the leadership, from Hebraic Jews, but now it's everyday Hellenistic Jews getting in on it too. And they stir up trouble against Stephen and drag him before the Jewish leadership. Verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. 
all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What's the complaint? What's the charge against Stephen? It's repeated with different words, but the core accusation is followers of Jesus are opposed to everything the Old Testament says is important, place and law. A place is about the temple, but more than the temple, place is about the whole promised land. And the law is the law God gave through Moses for his people. So the Jewish laws, the Ten Commandments, as well as the hundreds of other commands in the first five books of the Bible. Stephen is accused of speaking against and not respecting, of not believing the law and the temple are of God. That's the accusation. Verse 1, Acts 7, 1, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? And the rest of chapter 7 is Stephen's defence. His argument in his speech is it's not followers of Jesus who are against the law and the holy place. In fact, it's Israel's leaders. It's the, the high priest and his mob who have rejected God. And he makes this point by retelling the history of God's dealings with Israel. He doesn't go into all the details, but summarises Israel's history to show it's all about Jesus. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. God's place, uh, the promised land and the temple are signs pointing to Jesus. God isn't as tied to geography as the priests think. And in fact, by killing and rejecting Jesus, they show they have no respect for God's place or God's law. Now, this is a longish speech. Uh, We're going to go through all of it, but not in much detail. Uh, We've already looked at this in Bible study. And can I encourage you to read it again this afternoon or during the week? And if you've got questions, uh, chat with one another or give me a call. Stephen begins his retelling of God's story by going back to the beginning. Uh, Not the beginning of everything, but to the beginning of God's chosen people with Abraham. And as we read how Stephen summarizes the story of Abraham, pay attention to the promise of the land. And also how God was speaking to Abraham and with Abraham, even outside the land. Verse 2, Acts 7-2. To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a land not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves." God said, and afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Why does Stephen's story begin with Abraham? I reckon there's a few reasons, not just because it's where the story of Israel starts. Is because Abraham is all about God's promise of a place. Uh, Do you notice that in verse 7? God's promise is Abraham's descendants will worship in this place. 
By this, God means the land of Canaan. But at the same time, do you notice where God appeared to Abraham? Uh, Look at verse 2. It wasn't in the promised land. It was in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. Uh, Stephen's point is, yes, God promised a land to Abraham's descendant, but God's not tied to the land. He is with his people wherever they are. And this is even more clear as the story continues with Joseph, verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and over all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain son of money. Once again, the life of Joseph is about God's place. Joseph's life is a time of waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. He dies and all they possess is enough ground to bury their bones. But Stephen's point is, even outside the land, even in Egypt, verse 9, God is with Joseph. God's presence and blessing isn't limited to the land. Uh, Joseph is also important because he begins the pattern of someone chosen by God but rejected by his people. And that's key because that's what Stephen is going to accuse the Jewish leaders of doing to Jesus. So far, Stephen has summarized 400 years very quickly. But with Moses, he slows things down. Because the big accusation is that by trusting in Jesus, somehow Stephen is opposing Moses and everything God did through Moses. But Stephen's point in this section is that Moses himself knew Jesus and was looking forward to Jesus. Like Jesus, Moses was chosen by God but rejected by his people. Have a listen to how it all starts in verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, who to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 
When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Uh, That's a summary of the first 40 years of Moses' life. As verse 25 says, chosen and used by God. No ordinary child because God had chosen him. But those who were meant to be God's people rejected him. But even though he was rejected and cast out by his people, God appeared to Moses, verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Where does God appear to Moses? Where did the the burning bush moment happen? It was somewhere near Mount Sinai. And Sinai isn't in the promised land, it's in the wilderness. The point might be lost on us because we're not familiar with the geography, but the point Stephen's making is, where does God appear outside the promised land? Where is this most holy bit of dirt, so holy Moses had to take off his shoes? It's not the temple. It's not even in the promised land. What makes it holy isn't its GPS coordinates. What makes it holy is God is there. God's presence makes a place holy. Though let's interrogate the word God a bit, because Stephen emphasises something to make the Jewish leaders think. Who spoke to Moses? Who appeared in the burning bush? In verse 30, it says, an angel appeared. But in verse 31, it's the Lord who speaks. So is it an angel or is it Yahweh, a creature or the creator? And Stephen isn't making this up. In Exodus 3, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared in flames of fire. And it also says, God called to him from within the bush. What's going on? In the Old Testament, we sometimes meet this angel of the Lord, angel of Yahweh. Now, there are other angels we meet, but this angel stands out. He stands out because when this angel speaks, God speaks. And this angel receives sacrifices and worship as if he is God. I don't know what the Jewish leaders thought was going on with the angel of the Lord, but Stephen does. Stephen emphasises the role of this angel because he's come to realise the angel of the Lord is none other than the second person of the Trinity. It's the Lord Jesus before he's born of Mary. This is mind-blowing stuff. It means Israel's history doesn't just look forward to Christ. Christ is personally present throughout their history. Christ is promised and present. Christ was in the burning bush. That's what makes the ground holy. Christ was on Mount Sinai. He is the one who spoke to Moses. Verse 37, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. 
and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. Remember the charge against Stephen, that by talking about Jesus, he's against Moses and against the law? Well, Moses not only foretold the coming of Jesus, a prophet like me will come, but Moses also spoke with the one who was to come. Followers of Jesus can't be against Moses because Moses met Christ and because Moses spoke Christ's words. But back at Sinai, the people didn't want a bar of it and they rejected Moses and God. Verse 39. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon and stars. This agrees with what is written in the books of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Sinai is meant to be a high point for Israel. God the Son is speaking to Moses. He's receiving living words from God himself. But down the bottom of the mountain, the people are rejecting God, rebelling against his law. And here, Stephen quotes Amos's reflection on those years. For the whole time in the wilderness, even as they built a tabernacle, which was meant to be the place to worship God, they had all the external appearances of worshipping the one true God, but they're actually worshipping idols, which is what he's about to accuse to those present of doing. So God's people have rejected Moses, they've rebelled against his law, and they've defiled his place by worshipping idols. But in his kindness, God does what he promised. He brings them into the promised land and makes a permanent place. Verse 44, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a temple for him. We know the temple Solomon built was impressive, but it was destroyed by the Babylonians as God's punishment. The temple they knew in Jerusalem was physically and architecturally even more impressive. And for the Jewish leaders, it was theologically impressive, the dwelling place of God, an impressive place even though their own scriptures recognize this isn't the whole story. Verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Yes, the temple was the place chosen by God for sacrifices to be made, It showed his special relationship with the descendants of Abraham. But in what way could God be contained in bricks and mortar? 
How could God live in a building made by people? God is the creator, not us. Solomon knew this. The prophets knew this. Even Abraham knew this. Uh, The whole point of Israel's history, as Stephen has told it, is God is where his people are. God is where his people are. Whether that's modern-day Iraq or Mount Sinai, God's place isn't about geography. God is bigger than all he's made. God's place is with his people wherever they are. But the Jewish leaders couldn't see this. They were walking in the footsteps of those who'd gone before, like the brothers rejecting Joseph, like the people worshipping idols in the wilderness. By rejecting Jesus, they've rejected God. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. He doesn't pull his punches. Before we get to how the Jewish leaders respond, we need to hear the same warning. Just like the Jewish leaders, it's possible to know the Bible, but not Jesus. For most of the 50 verses of Stephen's speech, the Jewish leaders would have been nodding along. They would have agreed with his retelling of their story. But by rejecting Jesus, by murdering the righteous one, they reveal the truth. They reveal the truth that they've rejected God. They don't obey his law. They don't recognize his place. In Hebrews 2, we hear a similar warning. Uh, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard of. So we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? You can come to church your whole life. You can know the Jewish law, the Ten Commandments, off by heart. You can affirm all sorts of Christian ethics and morals, but if you don't receive Christ, how will you escape? For many Christians, the place, the building they meet in, it can be connection to the past. They don't love Jesus, they love the nostalgia of religion. How will you escape? The Jewish leaders show it's possible to be for religion, for tradition, but against God. But there is salvation. Jesus stands ready to receive those who know him. Verse 54, uh, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, He fell asleep. What a sight Stephen got to see. As far as we know, Stephen never saw Christ in his earthly ministry. This is the first time he saw Jesus in glory at the right hand of the Father. 
I take it Jesus is standing because he's welcoming Stephen into his presence. Uh, The two accusations against Stephen, that he's speaking against the law and against this holy place, how do they add up? It's not Stephen who's against the law. It's those who murdered Jesus and now murder Stephen. They make a mockery of the law. And yes, Stephen's not so fussed about the temple because God doesn't live in a place built by human hands. God is where his people are. By his spirit, God is building a new temple, a living temple. Wherever spirit-filled believers in Jesus are, that's God's holy place. But Stephen is not against the law or the place. But Stephen knows the truth of how they are fulfilled in Christ. What's God's message for us today? Most important, don't ignore so great a salvation. Receive Christ. He's the one who's been present and speaking through the whole Bible. So receive Christ, submit to him as Lord, receive his forgiveness. If Jesus could forgive those who killed Stephen, he can forgive you. And second of all, if you're a Christian, we need to be whole Bible Christians. I have loads of sympathy for those of us who are like Susie and find the Old Testament hard work. But if Christ is present in the whole Bible, to not know, to not read the Old Testament is to miss out on what God has revealed to us about his son and through his son. Ironically, many Christians could in some sense be found guilty of the charge against Stephen. Not truly, because if you are in Christ, you've experienced the fulfilment of God's place and law. But on another level, by not being familiar with the whole story, we kind of are against God's place and law. Now, it can be hard reading the Bible full stop, let alone the Old Testament. If you find it hard, join a Bible study. If you find it easy, join a Bible study. We need each other. Uh, Next term, we're going to be studying an Old Testament book. So we're going to be working together on how to understand and apply the Old Testament. That's a great way to learn how to read the Bible. Do it in community. Also, there are plenty of good books that can help you understand the whole Bible. Uh, here's one I'm going to recommend today. It's, it's, I recommend it. It's fairly easy to read. Uh, it's called God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts. It's not that long. It's fairly easy to read. Uh, it's a great way of helping us understand how the whole Bible is about Jesus. And I reckon once you get that, once you get that the whole Bible is about Jesus, it makes it so much easier to read the details of the whole Bible. So don't ignore salvation in Jesus. Don't ignore the first 39 books of the Bible. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and it's all about Jesus. Please help us to know you, hear you, and see you in the whole Bible. We praise you that your presence isn't limited by geography, uh, that wherever your people are, you are. Help us to know this means you're always with us. And we praise you because the law which was given by Christ is there to point us to Christ, to his holiness, glory and salvation. Open our eyes to see Jesus, that we might not miss on the salvation that is in him. Amen.